Welcome to the podcast of Christ Community Baptist Church, located in Prestonsburg, Kentucky, the heart of Appalachia. We are a reformed, confessional, and gospel-centered church seeking to make disciples by declaring the gospel, displaying the gospel, and defending the gospel to the glory of God and the eternal good of our neighbors. We pray that this teaching you will soon hear is edifying, faithful to Scripture, and Christ-exalting. Come join us for worship this Lord's Day. For more information about CCBC, visit ccbcpressensburg.org. church. Well, we are back in the gospel account of John. And for those who this is your first Sunday at CCBC, um, we have, we are starting the journey of walking through John's gospel account verse by verse, phrase by phrase and line by line. And we hope to finish this um, before my three-year-old daughter graduates high school. But um, so, but we're taking a big chunk this morning. We we're taking a big chunk this morning. And honestly, um, because we could stay in the first uh, 18 verses of John's gospel account, his, his prologue, there's so much in these first 18 verses that literally Seth and I could easily, and that's not because we're great preachers, but we could easily pull out 25 sermons from these 18 verses. But I'm going to do the best that I can to preach verses 6 through 18 in one sermon. Now, uh, pray for me in that regard. But again, the, the theme of this text, we've already walked through verses 1 through 5. And verses 1 through 5 have taught us who is the incarnate word. Who is this logos that John is using this Greek and Hebrew word to define who Jesus is. And he's doing this intentionally, if you'll remember from last week and, and the week prior. He's using a word that both Jews and Greeks will understand. And it's to testify to the deity of this man named Jesus from Nazareth. So verses 1 through 5 answer the question, who is Jesus? Is he just a mere moral teacher? Is he just a mere prophet as other religions, as Islam believes? Is he a created being as Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses believe that has ascended into godhood or deity through his earthly ministry? No, John the, John the, the Apostle John has told us that Jesus is one with the Father. He is from eternity past, he is pre-existent, and he is both truly God and truly man in the person of Christ. He is not less than God, and he is not less than man. He is both truly God and truly man. And we're going to recover some of these very truths in our text this morning. But I want us to read, just so we understand the context of where we've been, I want us to read through, starting in verses 1, all the way to verse 18. So John 1, 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, 
Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me makes before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. But he has made him known. Let's pray. Father, we pray very simply that we would see your glory in this text. Father, help me to proclaim the word of the living God. And Father, help us to hear the word of the living God. Lord, much of what we'll hear today will probably be truths that we've all heard before. But Father, I pray that we wouldn't have the posture and the spirit that we don't need to hear these things again. But God, you would give us a heart of humility. To, and, and a heart uh, that, is, that is, has good soil to take in the word that it might bear lasting fruit in our lives. Father, for those who are saved here this morning, I pray that your word would, would strengthen them and encourage them and equip them. For those who don't know Christ this morning, I pray that your word would convict them of their sins and help them to see their need for a merciful Savior in the person of Jesus. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. So friends, the first thing I want us to see in this text is the testimony of John the Baptist, verses 6 through 8 and verse 15. First of all, who is his identity? His identity, who is this man? Now, we, it's easy to make the mistake to think that this man whose name is John is the same John of the gospel account. But John, in verses 6 through 8, is not the apostle John, the one who, who wrote this gospel account, the disciple of Jesus. This is John the Baptist. This is an individual who was a prophet. Uh, he was the last prophet in the Old Covenant. In fact, he broke the prophetic silence from the book of Malachi all the way to Jesus' earthly ministry. About 400 years, God did not speak through a living prophet until John the Baptist. But what was John the Baptist's ministry? We see in verses 6 through 8 that there was a man sent from God whose name was John. And he came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. So John the Baptist's ministry is very simple. John the Baptist was to testify of the arrival, the advent, or the coming of the promised Messiah that the Old Testament pointed to. The, the king of Israel is now here. He has arrived. And before John the Baptist even was able to point at a specific individual that, yes, it's Jesus of Nazareth who this is, John the Baptist, from the testimony that he had received from God, was already proclaiming this message of repentance, this baptism of repentance, that the Messiah is here, and what is our response in this coming Messiah? It's to repent of our sins and to believe in the promised one. John preached a message of repentance and performed a baptism of repentance to Israel. Why is he coined the nickname John the Baptist? Baptist was not his last name. Having coined his nickname for conducting these baptisms, which prior to the New Covenant, baptism was a, was a, a work 
that the Jews would participate in to cleanse themselves uh, clean for ritual practices, to make them ceremonially clean. But what John the Baptist does is he flips this practice of fully immersing someone underwater. He flips it up on its head. John says, you ought to be baptized not to be ceremonially clean, but you ought to be baptized to display that you are spiritually unclean and that you don't just need to be cleansed ceremonially and ritually. You need to be cleansed spiritually and only through faith in this coming Messiah. But I also want us to see just very quickly that John was also a man marked with humility. Verse 15, and we'll jump down verse 15. It says, John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. John the Baptist was a man of humility. This will be a major theme that Pastor Seth will walk us through in verses 19 through 34. But we see his humility put on display here in verse 15 as well. Before John the Baptist was able to point to Christ as the Messiah, he was able to announce in general terms the advent of the long-awaited king of Israel. John stresses in verse 15 to inform us that even though his ministry began prior to Jesus' earthly ministry, Jesus surpassed John in his majesty, glory, and honor. Why? Because Jesus existed before the Baptist. John's humility is that when confronted with the opportunity, think about this, when John was confronted with the opportunity to claim, to tell others that he was the Messiah, because in the first century, if your ministry was, was before another, you were the one who was viewed as the, the superior. You were, you were the one who was viewed as the superior of those who came after you. And so thus, when people saw John the Baptist testifying of the arrival of the promised Messiah of the Old Testament, rightfully, or not rightfully, but Jews logically thought that John was testifying that he was the promised Messiah. And think about the temptation here. If John was to say, yes, I am the promised Messiah of the Old Testament, I am the Christ, he would have gained a large following. He would have gained uh, popularity and status. But what does John do from, from, from the jump, right from the beginning, as soon, and we'll see this in verses 19 through 34 next week. But what does he testify? He says, I am not the Christ. This was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. So John the Baptist was not the lot, but he came to testify of the lot. And I'll also mention something. A lot of people, um, they, they think that just because John the Baptist baptized Jesus, that that makes the Baptist superior to Jesus in some certain way. But John also baptized Jesus in the Jordan River to fulfill all righteousness. In what way? Jesus was baptized not because he had sins he needed to repent of, but he was baptized to identify with the people whom he came to save, who were sinners. Thus foreshadowing his representative role as priest who would make a substitutionary atonement for us on the cross. So Jesus was not baptized because he had sins that he needed to, be, to repent of. He was not baptized because he needed a savior. Jesus was baptized to stand in the gap, if you will, to represent those he came to save. Me and every single one of us 
who are sinners and who have fallen short of the glory of God. He was baptized to represent that we need a Savior, and that Savior is only in Christ alone. So we come to that John has came to testify of the light in verse 9. So as we come to verses 9 through 13, we are reintroduced to the word that the Apostle John uses as a title for Jesus. And it's that Greek word, phos. Now the context in which Jesus was the light in verses 4 and 5, if you remember, did not refer to conversion explicitly. But rather it referred to creation and all mankind finding our existence as being made in the image of God, the Imago Dei, as human beings sourced in the self-existing light of the Messiah. In verses 4 through 5, we, we learned that the Son, the Word, created all things. And we receive both our natural life and our spiritual life from the Son. We talked about last week how the reason that we woke up this morning and the reason we woke up again this morning ultimately wasn't because you had enough sustenance in physical terms, that you had enough food in your belly, you had enough sleep last night, and your heart didn't stop beating. Ultimately, we are here this morning, we are awake, we are alive this morning because the Son willed it to be so. Because our life is sourced in the self-existent life of Jesus Christ. Why? Because He is God. But here in verses 9 through 13, the context of Lot has shifted from creation to conversion through the incarnation and pre-existent eternal light. Now from this point on, John's reference to Jesus as the light will largely be in the context of conversion rather than creation. And this is chiefly seen in John 8 verse 12, which says, Then Jesus again spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now, before we get to verse 10 and read of a shocking reality, I want us to camp out for a moment at verse 9. John declares that Jesus was the true light. Now, what does this mean? The word true in the Greek is the Greek word althenos, and it means real or genuine or true. And what John is doing is he is clarifying for us that this light is not anyone or anything else but Jesus. The pre-existent word made flesh. Now the same word who was with God in the beginning and the same word who was, was God is this light which has come into the world. The created order as the genuine and ultimate self-disclosure of God to man. But in what sense does this light enlighten every man? John tells us that the light has come into the world and he has enlightened all men. Now, if you grew up in Armenian context like me or Methodist context or Armenianism is essentially the belief of this notion of a free will. If you grew up in context like this, then you also were probably taught of this notion of prevenient grace. Grace that enables all people to freely choose or reject Christ of their own will without the irresistible draw of the Spirit and new birth. And this text would be used to defend such doctrines like that, that the light, Jesus, has come into the world, and he enlightens all men. They, the argument is that Jesus has given a, a measure of grace unto all people that they might believe in the Messiah. However, John 1.9 is not teaching 
the doctrine of prevenient grace. Rather, it prepares us for sovereign grace displayed in verses 10 through 13. But the way in which Jesus is the light and enlightens every man comes down to two primary conclusions within church history. The first is that this refers to general revelation. Now, this position is held by many uh, well-known and respected individuals within the church. Uh, and historically, it was held by John Calvin himself. But as Paul argues in Romans 1.20, he says, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. Therefore, the argument in, view, in this view of John 1.9 and that the coming incarnate light strips the Jews of an excuse to reject the Messiah, the God-man. That this grace in which Christ is brought into the world is the grace of creation itself. That all creation testifies to the existence of God, to the glory of God, as Psalm 19 declares. So that's the first view. I, I personally don't find it that compelling. I, I personally affirm the second view which refers to the exclusivity of Jesus as the only source of light and wisdom that God has given the world. Uh, Augustine illustrated this point this way. He, he views it like this. Jesus is in a town, which is the created world, where there is only one teacher, who is Christ, of wisdom and truth. Though not all citizens are the teacher's students, or in this case for Jesus, his disciples. Nevertheless, the teacher is available for everyone. So Christ is the only true lot that God has given the world and is available for everyone and therefore is the only lot for every man. Any person seeking to discover the apex of wisdom and truth must come and sit down at this teacher's feet, who is Christ alone. So I believe it is in this sense that Jesus enlightens every man. Because only Jesus is the true source of truth. Only Jesus do we truly find wisdom and truth and our understanding of who we are as human beings and who God is. Jesus says in John 14, 6 that I am the what? The truth, the life, and the way. And the, excuse me, and the only way to the Father. So we see this exclusivity in John 14, 6. But also we see the exclusivity of, of Christ in John 1.9. Do you want to know who God is? Do you want to have a relationship with God? Well, John the Baptist testifies to us the only way that you can do that is through the light, is through Christ who gives enlightenment to all human beings. But the shock of this passage is that this light which the world, which the Word who, who created the world came into the world and is now rejected by the world. So the Word who created the world has come into the world and is now rejected by the world. And it's this very lot that the, word, that the world rejected. And so let's look at Jesus' rejection in verses 9 through 11. It says, The true lot, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. The world that was made by the light does not know the light. And this is not just the Gentile world, but it is those who are his own, the Jews. 
Acts chapter 13, verses 26 through 27 says, Brethren, sons of Abraham's family, and those among you who fear God, to us the message of this salvation has been sent. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, recognizing neither him nor utterances of the prophets which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled these by condemning him. Jesus, who was the perfect Jew, Jesus, who came as a Middle Eastern man, was a Jew, the God-man, the, the God in human flesh, clothed with humanity, the one who created all things and created the Jews in which he came in, in Nazareth, the one who created all things was rejected by his creation. The creator of all things was rejected by his creation. The irony of this. And not only that, but the Jews were the ones who crucified the Messiah. Thus fulfilling the eternal plan of redemption. But both Jew and Gentile, Israel and every nation, people group and race, have all turned from our Maker in rebellion to seek after our own desires. Jesus did not enter into humanity because He knew that He had a welcome party full of full-fledged devoted followers awaiting His arrival. Sure, the Jews were awaiting for the Messiah, but they were waiting for a political warrior who would defeat their political enemies in order to establish not the glory of God, but the glory of national Israel. Thus, as Jesus enters into humanity... The Creator becomes that which He created, and He finds a people who do not receive Him for, for who He is. Why? Because Jesus is not what they expected, nor is He what they wanted. And doesn't this bring new meaning to John 3.16? I'm sure we all know this verse. But when John tells us that God loved the world, it is far from an endorsement to the world. Rather, it endorses and magnifies the grace of God to love that which did not love Him. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. We can read that out of context and think, man, the world must be worthy of this love. But if we keep reading from verse 16 on to verse 20, verse 20, here's what we read. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. This is where most people stop. But if we keep reading, Jesus tells us this. He who believes in Him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than the light. For their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light. And that's Christ. For everyone who does evil hates Christ. And does not come to Christ or the light. For the fear that his deeds will be exposed. So furthermore, if the light which is Christ comes into the world, then that means by implication that his proper abode of life is outside of the world. Meaning the light does not belong to the world which is characterized by darkness. What does John chapter 8 verse 23 says? Jesus said, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. 1 John chapter 2 verse 16 says, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. Now, 
The rejection of the Messiah in the world ought to remind us of three biblical realities. And I'll be the first to say that these realities make me uncomfortable because I don't like these realities. Why? Because I'm a, I'm a fallen sinner redeemed by grace. And there's many things that I read in Scripture that I, might, that I might not like, but they're true not because I like them or don't like them. They're true because God has written them in His Word. And so these are just some of these, these hard-to-swallow but yet true realities we see in Scripture. And the first is that our rejection of the Messiah is ultimately rooted in our mysterious connection to Adam. When Adam rebelled against God in the garden in Genesis 3, in a mysterious way, all of his posterity, every human being from him, that is all of mankind that would come from this first man, fell in him as Adam was mankind's representative head in the garden. Now, how do I explain this? The, an illustration that, I, that makes sense for me, I played football in high school and a year in college, and so anytime I can plug a football illustration, I'm going to take advantage of it. But when you commit a penalty in football, say the offensive lineman jumps off sides, does the offensive lineman who, who was penalized, is he alone the one who moves back 10 yards, or is the whole team penalized? The whole team is penalized. And it's this idea that we see with Adam. When Adam fell in the garden, it wasn't just Adam who fell. It was the whole team who fell in him. Thus, everyone who came from this first man has fallen in Adam. This means that since Adam's fall and our fall in him as mankind, all people have been born with what we call original sin. Psalm 51 verse 5, David says, In sin did my mother conceive me. And this means we are in need of a Savior from the moment of our conception. There is not one point in our life where we can say this individual does not need Christ. No, from the moment of conception, we are in need of Christ. And we know biblically that we are sinners from conception. Because what? The wages of sin is what? Romans 6.23. Death. And we see children die in the womb of their mothers every day. As a result of their original sin before the child had ever had opportunity to sin personally in their life. Thus our rejection of the Messiah, this means this, our rejection of the Messiah is not a learned behavior that comes as a byproduct of our environment. Our rejection of the Messiah is a byproduct of our very nature as fallen human beings in Adam. Romans 5 verse 12 says this. Through one man, Adam, sin entered the world, and death through sin. And so death spread to all men, or all mankind. Why? Because all sin. We are sinners not because we sin. We sin because we are sinners, and it's rooted in our very nature as human beings. And secondly, our rejection of the Messiah by way of our fall in Adam means that we are not naturally children born of God. We are not naturally children of God by birth. Rather, we are born children of God's wrath in need of a mediator and Savior who can stand in our place. There has never again been a moment that we didn't need Christ. And this is clearly seen in, in Paul, in, in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1-3. through three. Paul says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, 
of the Spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, too, we all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And here it is. And we were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. So how are we, how do we become children of God? And this, this text does end with good news. But before we get there, we also must realize there's a third reality in our rejection of the Messiah that we must, that we must camp out at. And it's that our rejection of the Messiah is visibly seen in our refusal to obey Christ as King. John tells us in 3.20 that for everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for the fear that his deeds will be exposed. Friends, this means that a lack of evidence is ultimately not the reason why people reject the gospel of Christ. There is no amount of persuasion, evidence, or facts that can bring someone to saving faith in Christ apart from the Spirit of God. Why? Because this text presupposes the reality of Romans 1, where Paul says that we all, that is every human on planet Earth, no God exists, but we suppress that knowledge in order to continue to gratify our own sinful pleasures. Because here's what happens. The moment that you realize that God exists, the moment that you believe in that and, and bend the knee to God, that's the moment that you realize that your sins are not just mere mistakes, but they're sins before a holy and righteous God in which he will hold us accountable. Now notice John says that we reject the lot not because we don't know the lot, but because we fear that our deeds will be exposed. Again, so we suppress the truth of God. We try to ignore it through drowning it out with drugs, entertainment, sex, anything that can take our mind off thinking about the reality that we know is true. And that reality that there is a God in heaven, and that after death, when we're buried in the grave six feet under, that that's not the end of ourselves. But there is more after the grave. We know that to be true. The reason people suppress that belief, the reason people suppress that truth, is because if they believe it, then that means that they will be held accountable for the things that they have done in their life. So what is heartbreaking is that in doing so, we attempt to find pleasure in sin, which is fleeting and leads to destruction. And we run from the God in which true pleasure, true joy, true contentment is found. God and living in obedience to Him, friends, is not a killjoy. Sin is a killjoy. And for every single one of us in Christ here this morning, we can look back at our past and, and, and how we used to view Christianity, how we used to view the Bible, that, that man, that's just a rule book. That's just a bunch of, of man-made religion that's trying to keep me from trying, from finding true joy and happiness in my life. But once we come to the realization that Christ is a merciful Savior and that these words are not just mere words of men, but they're the words of God. Once we truly see our need for Christ and we place our faith and trust in Him by grace, we realize, man, this relationship with Christ, it's, it, it was never meant to, to rob me from joy, contentment, and peace. But in fact, I now have greater peace, I now have greater joy, and I have greater contentment than I ever did, thinking that I was the God of my own life. And friends, that's the good news of the gospel. That in Christ, you will have far more peace and far more joy and far more contentment than, than drugs, sex, or entertainment ever gave us outside of Christ. But there is good news in verses 9 through 13. And the good news is that despite our fall in Adam, 
And despite our rebellion to our Maker, the light by our very nature, some do receive Christ. John has not told us that no one receives the light. John has not told us that, that everyone continues to reject the light. But some do receive him. We read of this reception in verses 12 through 13. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. It happens every day in courts across America. A judge utters a few words, pounds his or her gavel on the desk, and a child receives a new family. Adoptions take place because biological parents are either unable, unfit, or unwilling to care for the child they brought into the world. But these events are wonderful because when the hammer strikes, that child belongs fully to parents committed to love and care for the child. What John is declaring to us in verses 12 through 13, friends, is nothing short of the sweetest doctrine in Scripture. And that is the doctrine of our adoption by God. John says that those to, who, to those who received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Not only does this imply again that we were not children of God by default, but it also implies that in order to become a child of God, God must grant that to us. But how? How do we become adopted by God? How do we become the children of God? Is it by our social status? Is it by who our family is? This is what the Jews thought. The Jews thought that they were children of God because they were physical descendants to Abraham. But that's not true. Is it by our good deeds and works? Is it by our good outweighing our bad? No, what does John tell us in verse 13? Those who received him were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Now what John is saying here is that our receiving of Jesus, that is trusting in Christ alone by grace through faith, and becoming children of God is not two things. One, it's not the result of being ethnic Jews. That's the explicit context of John. John is testifying and proclaiming this to Jews who thought again that they were children of God because they were descendants of Abraham. So being a child of God is not a result of your ethnicity. But secondly, being a child of God is not the result of our wisdom or our choosing of God. The doctrine of adoption is the gracious, sovereign, and merciful right that is granted upon unworthy sinners whom God the Father has chosen in the Son and through the Spirit in eternity past. It is the legal transaction in which God the Father allows those whom he regenerates or to be born again, which we'll study in more depth in John 3, to be allowed in his eternal family, a family in which we were not part of prior to our conversion. Now, while regeneration and justification secure our salvation from sin and death, it is our adoption by God that establishes us as children who went from being children of wrath in Adam to being children of God in Christ who inherit not what Adam deserved and we in him, which was the wrath of God due to us for our sin, but we inherit what Christ deserved due to his perfect obedience before the Father, which is life, peace, and communion with God. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3 through 6 says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ 
who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. And here it is. In love, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the kind intention of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. Friends, how can this be? It can be because what Christ has done for all who are in Him by faith is far greater than what Adam has done for all who are living in Him in unbelief. In Adam we receive condemnation for the works that we did not do. But in Christ we receive justification, salvation, and redemption for works that we did not do. The, the spiritual life that flows from the person of Christ is given to us by grace through faith in Him. It's all about the superiority of Christ over Adam. What Christ has done in His life was far greater than what Adam has done in his life. Romans 5, 17-21 says, For if by the one transgression of the one, that is Adam, death reigned through him, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through one, Jesus Christ. So then as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one, that is Christ, the many will be made righteous. The law came in so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So then as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So who are those who receive the lot that has come into the world, which is Christ himself? It is those whom the Father has given the Son before the world ever existed. And are called, by the, are called to the Son by the Spirit through the ministry of the Word. And are granted the faith necessary to believe the gospel and to repent of our sins. Thus being adopted into the family of God and enjoying the inheritance not of Adam, but of Christ, which is righteousness and communion with God for all eternity. But in verses 14 and 16 through 18, we see an important doctrine. And that's that the Word was made flesh. This is the doctrine of the incarnation. Now this is also the joy of Christmas. Verse 14 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now it is never too early to celebrate the reason we celebrate Christmas. And why do we celebrate Christmas? It's because of the advent of Jesus. The arrival of Jesus. The incarnation of Jesus. The, the one who is the second person of the Trinity has clothed himself with humanity. He has come as a human being to live the life that human beings couldn't live so that in Him we might find righteousness and salvation by grace through faith. So this is the joy of Christmas, but friends, also this is the joy of January, February, March, April. Every single month that you're alive and exist in, we celebrate, we celebrate what Christ has done in His life. And there may, there may be no deeper doctrine in Scripture that we can set our heart and mind toward on than the doctrine of the Incarnation. J.I. Packer said, Nothing in fiction, so nothing that has ever been made up, nothing in fiction is so fantastic 
as the truth of the incarnation. And thus, for the sake of time, because we can camp out in this verse for a long time, I simply want us to break this verse down and walk through it and just highlight some important elements in this text. John first says that the Word became flesh. John now returns to the Word of the Logos in reference to Jesus that we see in verses 1 through 2. The Word was in the beginning of creation, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. But now this Word has become flesh. What John is highlighting here is the divinity of Christ and the humanity of Christ. In saying that the Word became flesh, it's to say that God became man. Flesh highlights Jesus' human nature. This word logos, or the Word, highlights His divinity, His divine nature. And so there is, church, a great danger of falling into many heresies on this verse. There are dozens of ancient heresies on the person of Christ in regards to His divine and human nature. The doctrine of the Incarnation is so glorious and clear that my daughter at three years old can understand it. But the doctrine of the Incarnation is so glorious and so deep, yet we can study it for the duration of our lives and only scratch the surface of this beautiful doctrine. But John is absolutely clear in verse 14 on what he means that the Word became flesh. Both divine and human natures of Jesus are represented in Scripture as being united in one person. John highlights the distinct natures using the words word and flesh, but he uses this word became, this verb, to indicate the unity of his divinity and humanity in one person. So let's highlight this doctrine very clearly. Prior to the incarnation, friends, that is before Jesus came to earth to live out his earthly ministry, the 33 years of his earthly life, Jesus was a spirit and had no physical body. John 4.24 says that God is spirit. So Jesus did not come into creation. He did not begin to exist when he became a human being. He has existed in eternity past. He has always been God. There has never been a moment that he has come into existence. He has always been Secondly, Jesus has not become God at his baptism. That's a very common, heretical view that many churches, in fact, teach around even in this mountain, in these mountains. They believe that when the Spirit fell on Jesus at his baptism, that that was Jesus becoming God. But we see, for John has clearly taught us that Jesus is the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And we studied, when we started this journey in John, that the Word in the beginning does not mean in the beginning of God. It means in the beginning of creation. So Jesus has always been God. But after the incarnation, this is adding humanity to his divine nature. Jesus is now truly God and truly man forever. From the moment he came and clothed himself with humanity, 2,000 plus years ago, Jesus is now and for all eternity truly God and truly Man forever. Each nature remains completely distinct. His divinity is not his humanity, and his humanity is not his divinity. Christ is only one person, yet he possesses two natures, divine and human, perfectly united in one person. Now, if that doesn't want to make you grab a Tylenol for a headache, I don't know what will, to think about something as deep as this. But it's clear, isn't it? 
The doctrine of the Trinity, the person of Christ, it's clear and deep at the same time. We know that He's one person, not two. But in this one person, He is both fully God and fully man. Now John also says that this, that this Word, he, he dwelt among us. This Word became flesh and He dwelt among us. And we saw His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now the word dwelt here is the Greek word skeno. And this word literally means to pitch a tent, to draw near, or to come close. This word alludes to God's manifested dwelling and presence among the Israelites in the tabernacle and in the temple in the Old Testament. But in the Old Covenant, only the high priest could enter the Holy of Holies once a year on the Day of Atonement. The presence of God was veiled from the people of God due to His holiness and their sin. But what Christ has done in the Incarnation is he made in himself what was only 2D in the Old Testament and 3D now in himself in the New Covenant. Jesus came to do in flesh and blood for the people of God what God had only done in tabernacle and temple in the past. God clothed himself with humanity not to veil himself from us, but to dwell among us, to draw near to us, to have access to us. The same holy God of the Old Testament has become flesh. Not to destroy those in His presence who are in sin, but that He might fulfill all righteousness and save those who are in sin. The phrase, the only Son from the Father, this ought not to concern us as well. Uh, if you've ever had a conversation with a Mormon, if you've ever had a conversation with a Jehovah's Witness, they'll use John 14 as a text to, to, to teach that Jesus is a, a son, that he was created by the Father, that the Father had either had intimacy with some divine goddess woman, or some will even say that God had intimacy with Mary, and Mary thus gave birth to Jesus. But you know what that equates, right? That equates blasphemy. That equates blasphemy. The Son who is begotten is the Word. And the Word who is from the beginning, and the Word is God. But in what sense have we seen His glory, this transcendent beauty? We have seen the glory of God in the person of Christ because simply Jesus is God. Thus, friends, to see Jesus was to see God and nothing less. Nothing less. Hebrews 1.3 tells us that Jesus is the radiance of the Father's glory. And the exact representation of his nature. Beloved, the temptation here is to think that we who were not alive during Jesus' earthly ministry are at a disadvantage, aren't we? Have you ever heard people say, man, I wish I, I could have seen Jesus walk this earth? I wish I could have been alive when Jesus was walking the earth in his earthly ministry. I, just, I would believe in Christ if I got the opportunity to see what those, what those individuals saw in the first century. But friends, I'm of the belief that we have a greater blessing even than that. Because you know what the Jews of Jesus' day didn't have? The Jews of Jesus' day didn't have the full picture. They didn't have the full painting. They, they, they saw the Son of God, yes. But they didn't understand how, from the book of Genesis all the way to Revelation, how God had made this plan of redemption through the Son. They didn't see how it all fit together. Friends, we have the blessing of seeing the plan of redemption unfolded throughout the pages of history in this book, not only that we can read and meditate on as much as we want, but we see why Jesus came. They, 
They, they didn't understand that the, the mystery of the gospel was veiled. But we see that this mystery, we see this mystery of salvation, how sinners can be redeemed in the person of Christ through his life and through what he has done, not what through what we have done. That is made clear to us because of what is written on the pages of Scripture. So I would make the argument that we have a greater blessing than those who walk with Jesus in his earthly ministry. We have the blessing of being able to see the full picture, how it all fits together. How the Messiah that was promised in the Old Testament has come in the New Testament. And it's through his work, it's through his perfect life, it's through his substitutionary death on the cross. And it's through his resurrection that our greatest enemies of sin and death have been overcome. And it's through grace, through faith in him alone that we can be saved. We know that because of the full picture that we have in the scriptures. We, however, have this blessing, this complete gospel story. And I think it's often taken for granted, but it shouldn't be. But the question remains, this ultimate question, why did Jesus become man? Why did Jesus have to become a man? Why did he become a human being? Why did the creator of all that is clothe himself with his own creation? And this is what verses 16 through 18 tell us. Why we need the God-man. Verse 16 says, For from his grace we have received, from his, full, from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, and grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side, but he has made him known. In Christ we see the fullness of God, for he is God. And we find grace upon grace. Now this grace in Christ does not mean to shine a negative light on Moses and the Mosaic Law. For the Mosaic Law was a gift of grace in God's self-revelation to himself, to his people. And the Old Testament saints were saved the same way New Testament saints were. By grace through faith in the promises of God. Those who were saved in the Old Testament looked forward to the cross, forward to the promises of God. And those who are saved now, we look back to the cross. And the fulfilled promise of God. Thus what John is saying here is not that the law is null and void. But that Jesus has come as a greater Moses to bring about a greater exodus for the people of God. Moses led Israel out of Egypt. But Jesus leads God's people out of sin and death. Moses provided the tabernacle. But Jesus tabernacled among us. Amen. Revealing his glory and grace. While Moses hid his face from God, Jesus revealed the Father to us. And the law which came through Moses did not save, for by the works of the law comes knowledge of sin and not salvation. And no person has ever been justified by what they have done. But in the life of Jesus, he has fulfilled the works of the law, perfectly obeying the law on our behalf, that those whom the Father has given the Son... That through faith in him we receive righteousness unto salvation, not because of what we have done, but because of what Christ has done. Beloved, what the law could not do for the sinner, Jesus has done. The Old Testament sacrifices never tr could truly atone for sins and grant lasting peace to the conscience. The Old Testament sacrifices were merely made, made one ritually clean and ceremonially clean. And they appeased the wrath of God temporarily. But in Jesus Christ, the God-man, we see one who is God, thus fully able to represent mankind before the Father and not be tainted with original sin. In Jesus Christ, we see one who is human, thus fully able to live the life that we never could, obeying the law of God perfectly in our place. We need a Savior who is not only God, 
But we also needed a Savior who was human being to represent human beings in our place. Jesus ultimately became a human being. The Word became flesh so that He could die. For without the incarnation, there is no perfect life that earns the righteousness that sinners need to be justified before God. Without the incarnation, there is no atonement for sin. There is no Good Friday. And without the resurrection or the incarnation, there is no Easter Sunday. There is no resurrection from the grave. John 6, verse 51 says, Jesus says of himself, I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. This is the point Jesus is making. Jesus becomes in the incarnation this all-sufficient, spiritually satisfying bread who quenches the hunger, the spiritual hunger for those who believe in him by his physical sacrifice of his body on the death on, of his death on the cross. The one through whom the world was created came to restore the image of God in man that was marred by Adam. And this restoration is through God becoming man to live the life man never could. I love how C.J. Mahaney says, he says it this way. In God's righteous judgment, God has determined that the just penalty for sin is death. And without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Now sin has been committed by man, and therefore only man can atone for that sin. But here is my dilemma. I can't atone for my sin. I can't. I cannot satisfy God's righteous requirements. My disobedience condemns me before a righteous God, and I am captive to sin. It is humanly impossible for me to free myself from my sin. A divine rescue is necessary. I need a Savior. I need a Savior. And friends, that is what Christ has offered all mankind in Himself. To live that perfect, righteous life that I can't live, that you can't live, but only Christ has lived. And our salvation is not by what we have done. Our salvation, my salvation, is not because I've planted a church with Seth. My salvation is not because I read my Bible every day. My salvation is not because I'm a good husband or a good father. My salvation rests in what Christ has done alone, period. And the only reason I have assurance that I'm going to go to heaven when I die one day is not because of any all the record of the good things that I've done. Now, not how many old people that I've helped across the street. The only reason I have assurance that I will be in heaven one day when I take my last breath on earth and when my heart stops pounding is because Christ's sufficient work is enough for me. Because of Jesus alone. Jesus alone. And if we say that we're going to go to heaven because of anything we have done in the first person... If someone says, I'm going to go to heaven because I, I did this or I did that, friend, they have the gospel all wrong. The only, re the only proper response to us going to heaven is in the third person. I'm going to heaven because of He, because of Jesus and what He has done for me in His life, death, and resurrection. Now, as I come to a close, I want us to think some, a moment of self-examination here just very briefly. For those who claim to be Christians this morning, I want to ask you one question. The light of Christ has shone forth in creation in the hearts of every soul that has been born again by the power of the Spirit. And if you truly trust in Christ and know Him as King of your life, this light, His presence is living inside of you by the Spirit. We know that God doesn't just live outside of us. No, if we trust in Christ, the Holy Spirit lives inside of us. 
this life that has come into the world that gives both natural life and spiritual life dwells in us. And my question is this. Do people see the life of Christ in you? Now this is a question. If you don't claim to be a follower of Christ, this question is not for you. But if you claim to be a follower of Christ, my question is, do people see the light of Christ himself in you? 1 John chapter 1, verses 5-7 through seven says this, This is the message we have heard from him and announced to you, that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, of, but if we walk in the light, as he, as he himself is the lot, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus' his Son cleanses us from all sin. Now, friends, what John is saying here is not this, that Christians are perfect. John is saying when he says that if you live in darkness, this is that intentional desire to live in disobedience to God. It's not saying that you're sinless. I'm not sinless. But I follow the light. And my desires are, are to be in obedience to the King. My desire is to obey Christ. If we only pretend to live in the light by what we profess while our deeds, thoughts, and words still dwell in darkness, we will be exposed. We will be judged. For people will see that there's no fruit of the Holy Spirit in your life. And our, our profession of faith will be only that, a mere profession, a mere act of hypocrisy. Examine yourself. Your sins will be exposed before God. But may they be exposed while Christ is still a Savior giving rest to, to sinners. Because one day Jesus will return, his second advent, not as Savior but as judge, not to give mercy to sinners, but to give just wrath to sinners. And if we find ourselves in the darkness, it will be darkness that will become our abode for all eternity. So what are, what's the, what's, how do we end this text? How do we end all that we've read in John 6, John 1, 6 through 18. Very simple. Come to Christ. Trust in Him. Rest in Him. Live for Him. And enjoy Him. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for this text. Lord, we've covered many deep truths, many deep realities. Father, I pray that Your Word fell on good soil. Father, I pray that we wouldn't leave from this place uh, immediately forgetting all that we've heard. Father, I pray that if there's anyone here who doesn't have a copy of your word, that they would grab a copy before they leave this cafeteria. Father, I pray that we would daily open the book to hear from you. Father, we need to hear from our creator. We need to hear from our God. We need your wisdom. We need your grace. And Father, I pray that if there's anyone who is in this cafeteria now or watching online on Facebook that does not know Christ, does not know the one who has been who has become flesh to live the life we couldn't live, to die the death we deserve, and to be raised on our behalf to feed him sin and death. Father, if we don't know this man, may you give us faith. May you, may you not allow someone to leave this cafeteria without having talked to either Seth or I, that today would be the day of salvation. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.